to the passage that Andy read, uh, Matthew chapter 7. And uh, you can go ahead, uh, Chuck, and put that first slide up there. And the name of my message is, What Kind of a Builder Are You? What Kind of a Builder Are You? And I'd like to go ahead and take us to uh, the last half of the chapter, starting at verse 24. I'm going to read that first, then pray and get into the text. And it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we open the Word of God this morning, Father, in honor of you. Father, but much more importantly, Father, we pray that all that we offer to you is for your honor and glory, for your praise. And Father, as we examine this text, we desire to be wise builders, Father, building a foundation on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anybody here today who does not know Jesus personally in an intimate way, Father, as their Lord and their Savior, we pray that before they leave today, they will do business with you. And it's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. You know, in many of Jesus' uh, parables, he uses illustrations about uh, from the agricultural area. And, you know, I'm kind of a drugstore farmer. I like to get out there and kind of plow a little bit, so... I like that. I like the illustrations from the uh, agricultural side. But the passages that we're going to read today really is from the builder's side. And I kind of like that, too, because I have had a little bit of a hand in building along the way. And so that's that's kind of neat. And uh, so before I really get started, though, into the text, I, I Steve said, you know, Phil, you need to give some acknowledgement for the, the people that, has, that helped you along the way with some of this text. And I, I would have to admit that, uh, you know, I've I've gathered some very helpful insights to a couple of different sermons. Uh, John MacArthur in particular, he gave a a sermon back in 2006 at Grace Community Church called Two Paths, One Way. And uh, Steve Brandon also preached on this particular passage back in 2002. Now, I'm not re-preaching their sermons, so, you know, I'm not trying to plagiarize. Uh, I also like to result or consult to different commentaries like Matthew Henry. He's one of my favorites. And so... Ryan, I don't know if you use commentaries, but um, I kind of go to them as a last source, don't you? Okay. So I want to give an illustration this morning about the importance of becoming a wise builder. And it, it, it's a personal experience that I went through. And, and before we moved to the country here, we lived in a house up in Caledonia uh, where I had the opportunity to build out the basement. It was a large house, and the basement was unfinished. And since I'd never taken on this large of a project before... You know, it was an immense project. I was really careful in planning it. You know, I, I did a floor plan and identified all the materials, consulted with builders, friends. I think I talked to you about that build-out, Dirk, way back when. And uh, talked to electricians, plumber friends of mine, carpenters. And then I set about the work of, of building out this basement. And before long, I had a beautiful finished lower level complete with full kitchen, bathroom, bedrooms, and a fireplace. 
The floors, the entertainment center, the fireplace were all custom oak that I made with my own woodworking tools. And so uh, here's a picture of what it looked like. Can't see it very well, and that's only part of it, but I was really proud of that. You know, along the way, Karen gave me a great deal of encouragement, and I really felt like her hero. She said, Phil, you can do this. You've never built something this big before, but you can do this. And I was so proud, you know, and um, guys, I don't know if you felt that way when your wives have encouraged you, but I was really encouraged by that, you know. And so that autumn, we sold the house and moved out to the country. Doesn't that always figure you you fix up the house, then you sell it? (laughs) And that's what we did. And about six months after we sold the house, I got a call from the new owners. And he said, Phil, something terrible has happened downstairs in the basement. And what happened was that that winter they had gone away on a vacation. And when they came back, what do you think they found? The basement was completely flooded and ruined. Completely ruined. I was just... uh, saddened so much by this. But here's what happened. You know, in my planning, I neglected to consult with an HVAC expert. What does that stand for, HVAC? Heating, ventilation, and air conditioner, right? And so what happened was there happened to be a small leak. When I I built up the the soffits and covered up some pipes, I neglected to ventilate those pipes and the soffit properly. And so in the brickwork of the house, there was a little bitty hole, a little fissure in the brickwork that let in freezing air. And it hit those pipes and bang, froze the pipes and bang, they burst. And they had about a foot of water in their basement. Everything had to be pulled up. Now, the owner told me that the insurance took care of it, but I learned a very important and valuable lesson and an embarrassing lesson about building. So now that I've told you a story on myself, how many of you would still like me to come over to help you finish that, that remodeling project? Okay. No, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to consult with Peter Hilden over here. He's going to be your remodeler guy. Okay. I'll work under his direction. Okay. But uh, it was embarrassing. But, you know, actually, we are all builders of many things. You know, if you're married, you're a builder of your marriage. You're a builder of your spouse. You're building into that spouse those relationships that you're looking to be long-lasting. If you're a parent, you're building into those children, those character traits and and the examples that you want them to emulate so that they grow up honoring and serving the Lord. You know, if you're, um, uh, if you're a student in school, you want to be able to study hard, right, kids, so that you can go on and get good grades and go on to the next level of education. And if you have a job or a career, you want to be able to build into that job or career those features and uh, benefits that will carry you through hopefully to retirement. If you're building in your investment account, you want to be able to make the right choices there and, uh, and have a nice retirement account when you retire. But one thing that we should be very careful of is building a relationship with, with God. And, and some of us are better builders than others. And Jesus says that we can choose to be a wise builder or we can choose to be a foolish builder. And the choices you make will either live to uh, will either lead to eternal glory in heaven or eternal destruction. So I ask you the question: What kind of a builder are you? Are you a wise, skilled builder? Or are you a foolish, unwise builder? Give you a little background on the sermon we're going to we're going to be going to here shortly. It uh, comes from uh, 
the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we need to understand where Jesus is in his ministry and his preaching at this time. He's preaching one of the most important and famous of all of his sermons. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a masterful sermon. It really is. And these are not parables that he is putting out to the masses. What he's doing is he's teaching and giving instruction on righteousness preached to his disciples. The sermon begins in chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7. And he's someplace in Galilee. Galilee. We don't know, but he's on a large hill. And uh, he's repeating the same message that he's given in the villages, in the synagogues, with the theme, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's saying God is ready to do something special. Are you ready? Prepare for him to do something special in your life. That's what repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand means. Now, there are many people there besides his disciples. There are thousands of people that flocked to him because they saw his miracles and they wanted to come and get from Jesus. But there are others who have come to learn. In his sermon, Jesus has a very radical message. People hadn't heard these messages before. In fact, at the end of the chapter, it says they were amazed at his teaching. That's how radical they were. But it was really a direct confrontation, I guess, or a direct assault on the religious leaders for their beliefs. In a nutshell, the sermon is about doing several things, and I've identified 14 different things the Sermon of the Mount actually did. What Jesus has preached down here, he's... It's about gaining the kingdom of heaven through repentance and conversion. It's about turning to God from self. It's about brokenness over sin, about humility, hungering and thirsting for mercy and desiring righteousness. It's about calling on God and seeking him continually. Jesus teaches us how to pray, how to repair relationships. He gives us the cure for worry and anxiety. He shows us how to forgive ourselves and forgive others. He tells us about the purpose of fasting, judging others, and then finally the golden rule. Many of the things that you hear today that are repeated in society come from the Sermon on the Mount. Toward the end of chapter 7, Jesus is holding his listeners absolutely spellbound, telling them things that they had never heard before. And now he's getting ready to wrap it up. He's getting ready to share in his message how to implement the instructions, and he has a definite call to action. So my three points are very simple this morning. They go along with the builder theme. And the builder theme, of course, is the hope of building a strong foundation on the rock. I call them the builder principles, and there's three of them. Let me go over them real quick with you. You can kind of fill in the blanks there if you care to. Builder principle number one is the wise builder chooses the right plan. The wise builder chooses the right plan. Builder principle number two is the wise builder builds a good structure. The wise builder builds a good structure. And building principle number three is the wise builder follows the instructions. The wise builder follows the instructions. Now let's reread verses 13 and 14 and go to our first builder principle. Verses 13 and 14 says this. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus describes here two very different kinds of plans. 
One leads to heaven and one leads to hell. He gives no other plan. He gives no other option. There is no other way. There's just those two plans. The first plan is called entering by way of the narrow gate to eternal life. And he describes the narrow gate this way. He says, first of all, it's a small gate. Number two, it's very hard to find. And because it's hard to find, very few people go through it. Now, once a person enters the narrow gate, Jesus says that they now go on the way that is narrow that leads to eternal life. Now, of course, the the narrow gate and the narrow way are metaphors. They're symbols. The narrow gate is a symbol for conversion and regeneration. You know, on the farm where we live, uh, there are gates that are very important. And uh, they're used to protect the livestock from wandering off on the highway. And so the uh, cattle can't open them by themselves. You've got to have the farmer or somebody else to open that gate. And here's a picture of the gate on the farm. Is it hard to find? Can you see it? You can see the bars there a little bit. You know, it's grown over with weeds and tares, and therefore the, the cattle find it hard to find. And this is an actual gate on our farm. Of course, we don't have many cattle go through it nowadays. But, you know, I picture the narrow gate as being the same way. That's hard to find. You know, you can go up and down Alpine, all the way from as far down as it goes, as far north as it goes, and go to every single church and, and find in those churches who is offering passage by way of the narrow gate. It's hard to find. It's hard to find churches that preach the narrow gate gospel today. Jesus says when we come upon this narrow gate, representing the gospel, we must take it. We must enter in. Now, some preachers I know like to use this passage and call it uh, an invitation to accept Christ, which is pretty typical, the invitation to accept Jesus. But I kind of don't like the term invitation here because the use of the term invitation kind of suggests a weak appeal. Kind of like getting an invitation to a grand opening at a car lot, you know. Uh, You can come if you want, but you don't have to if you don't want to. I kind of picture the preacher there kind of hat in hand, you know, pleading with people to come and, and try Jesus. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus uses the imperative form. It's a command. He says, you must enter. He's directing us to enter through the small, hard-to-find gate. His tone of voice might sound like this. You better enter it now while I'm standing at this gate and prepared to let you in. Now, that's a call to action. And Jesus is saying, you better take it. Now, Paul backs this up in 2 Corinthians 6, too, because he says, for, for he says, and this is out of Isaiah 49.8, the first part of it, Isaiah 49.8, he's quoting here, he says, For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you. On the day of salvation I helped you. And this is what Paul adds. He says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Picture that Christ is standing at this gate. He says, Enter it now. Right now. Don't come and try it. Don't dilly-dally. Don't waste time. Don't wait till later. Do it, do it right now. Now, once you've entered the narrow gate, we're on the path that is called the narrow way that leads to life. Entering through this gate takes us out of a state of sin and places us into a state of grace, and we experience the new birth. 
The narrow way is now our journey into sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? You know, I, I like to say this about sanctification. You know, sanctification is becoming, in our earthly experience, what we are in our, um, in our position spiritually in Jesus Christ. So here we are in Jesus. You know, we're perfectly righteous. We're perfectly accepted as his child. We're totally equipped for good works. And our future is secure. But here we are in our experience. And we're trying to get there. We're on this narrow way. And at times we, we slip and stumble. But praise God, he's responsible for our sanctification. Amen? He is responsible for our sanctification. We don't have to work hard to get there. But being on the narrow way is, in fact, a hard way. It is a hard way. Because we must deal with battling the flesh continually. Self-denial. We have to deal with daily temptations keeping our desires under control and walking in the Spirit. And it's difficult to stay on the narrow way because of all the dangers that come along in our, in our path. But Jesus assures us that he will give us all that is required for us to stay on this journey, this narrow path, this road to eternity. James says in uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, you're very familiar with the passage, he says, we're, we're equipped for this journey. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. So we have everything we need to be on that narrow road to eternal life. You may ask the question, you know, why is it that he says here that you know, so few people enter in, so few people take the narrow gate? You know, if it's so appealing, why do so many people reject the gospel? That's a very good question. It's a very good question. And uh, all I would say is that uh, it's very simple. I mean, we can, we can answer that at different levels at different levels, we can talk about it theologically, we can talk about it practically, but here's what I would say this morning. I would say it's, it really deals with a division of what I call a division of labor. A division of labor. And it goes like this. God's job is to select. Our job is to project. Now, what do I mean by that? God's job is to select. It's God's job to offer grace. He has elected those who would enter the gate. That's his job. Our job is to project the gospel. That's all we're concerned about. And sometimes we get those roles confused, don't we? Sometimes we see it as our responsibility to get people into the kingdom. Well, we do have a responsibility there. But we get confused. Or maybe you're so satisfied with the doctrine of election that you say, hey, I don't have to go preach the word of God to anybody because God's going to save who we will. That's wrong, too. That's wrong, too. And Jesus gives us a very important example about our responsibility. When Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler found in Luke chapter 18, the young man asked him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this. He says in verse 22 to 23, One thing you still lack. Sell all of your possessions and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You see, he still had a responsibility to respond. Jesus was saying, we have a responsibility to put out the gospel, and man has a responsibility to respond to the gospel. Don't worry about the other stuff. That's God's job. Our job is to project the gospel. 
But this young man's possession was the one that kept him. It's the stuff that kept him out of entering that narrow gate, wasn't it? Well, then Jesus talks about the other plan. It's the plan that was most popular then. It's the plan that's most popular today. It's an account of the way of sin and sinners. It's the wide and broad gate that leads to destruction, and many are there are those who enter into it. And here's a picture of what I think that that wide gate and that wide, broad way looks like. Chuck, if you could put that up. Who knows what that is? Golden Gate. How many of you have been to the Golden Gate? It's a big structure, isn't it? Now, compare that to the small gate that I showed earlier. Now we see a big difference, don't we? Let me give you an idea of how large the Golden Gate Bridge is. It's six uh, lanes wide. It's 1.7 miles long, 764 feet high, and there's over 110,000 people that transport over over the uh, bridge every single day. You know, the gate is not that hard to find. It's a very easy path from San Francisco to Marin County. It's a wide and broad gate. And what it represents in our example, in our illustration here, is any religion outside of authentic Christianity. Let me give you an example of what the Jews thought in their day. Okay, The Jews thought they would be accepted into the kingdom because they were children of Abraham. You've heard that said before and expected God's favor. It was their heritage. It's their right to enter the kingdom because they were God's chosen people. They thought they were selected by God because of something about them that made them attractive to God. What a fallacy. Almost laugh at that, don't you? They thought they were special and that God selected them for a particular reason. No, they, they didn't really understand the concept of election either. But John the Baptist refutes this notion when he tells them in Matthew 3, 8 and 9, he says this. Now listen to this. This is really important. It says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. What was John the Baptist saying? He says there's two parts of salvation here. The Pharisees were coming, the scribes were coming. He says, who, who warned you ahead of time? You know, what you need to do is you need to be converted. You need to repent and you need to show fruit. Those are the two parts of salvation, repent and showing fruit. So why is it that the wide gate is more appealing than the, than the narrow way? Well, first of all, most people don't know that there's anything apart from placing their faith in Jesus Christ. The rock, the foundation, and that it leads to discretion. They, they have no idea. And they enter the wide gate. It's easy. You know, we all start out on the wide gate. And I guess um, if I would vary a little bit from our scripture, I kind of look at ourselves as being on the wide gate, on the wide way, the Golden Gate Bridge. And, and we want to take that exit that leads us to the narrow gate because we're all born in sin. We're all automatically headed toward destruction. It's not that we chose to go there. We're already on our way. Well, what is this religion, the wide gate religion that we're talking about? Well, it is a religion. It's a man-made religion where nothing is required. You know, nobody needs to repent and be sorrowful over their sin. Nobody needs to feel uncomfortable because of their lifestyle or their life choices. The wide gate and the Broadway is a religious a religion of convenience. No judgment is required. No punishment by God. 
No absolutes, no accountability whatsoever. People are lost on this road. They're stumbling around. And Judges 21-25 says, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that's kind of where they are on that wide bridge. And we see the effects of the wide road. The wide gate and the broad road in our society today. today because everything is upside down. Whatever was, was good is now evil. And what was evil is now good. There are no absolutes. No accountability. It's easy to stay on the wide road. So Jesus explains that you either go through the narrow gate, be converted, or you travel the wide gate where everyone tries to contribute to their own salvation. Either you get there by your own efforts or you don't. Those are the only two choices of every religion in the world. Either you get there by your own choices, your own righteousness, or you don't. So the wise builder chooses the right plan and goes through the narrow gate because it leads to eternal life. Here's builder principle number two. The wise builder builds a good structure. And we can go back to verses 15 through 20. Excuse me. Yeah, 15 through 20. Let me go to the right chapter, first of all. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. The wise builder builds a good structure. In other words, he produces a good product. Peter, you want to produce a good product when you're out there remodeling people's homes. Dirk, you want to produce a good product when you're out there examining all these EPA sites and that kind of thing, right? You've got to be right. You've got to produce a good product. You've got to have good fruit. That's what we're looking for. Got to have good fruit. You know, in my line of work, which is financial advisement, we've been trained to, de- to detect fraud and crime in Ponzi schemes and all kinds of nefarious activity. And since 9-11, we've had to undergo by the Securities Exchange Commission uh, all kinds of extensive, uh, what they call anti-money laundering training, money laundering training, okay, in order to protect our clients. But every now and then, somebody slips through the crack. Every now and then, somebody comes along and fools even the best and brightest, even the regulators, Chuck, go ahead and put the next person up there. Does anybody know who this guy is? His name is Bernie Madoff. Okay, Bernie Madoff. And Bernie Madoff was probably the greatest thief on Wall Street. He built his clients out of $86 billion. Now, this is really interesting. He got away with the scheme for almost 20 years and tricked not only the rich little old widow ladies out of their money, but very sophisticated money managers and hedge fund operators. Now, how did he do that? How did he get away with it for so long? Well, he built up incredible credibility over his lifetime. Listen to what he accomplished during his career. This is incredible. Here are some of his accomplishments. Anybody ever hear of the NASDAQ? The NASDAQ? The NASDAQ is the second largest stock exchange after the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange. It's where they clear almost a trillion dollars of money every year uh, on the exchange. Well, Bernie Madoff was one of its founders in 1971. 
Anybody ever hear of the NESD? It stands for National Association of Securities Dealers or its successor called FINRA. Anybody ever heard of that? That's actually the police agency for, for us, for the securities industry. This organization was created to police up the securities business. Bernie Madoff served as its chairman of the board and was on its board of governors for many years. He had so much credibility that they never checked his books and asked him where the money was going. The regulators never asked Bernie Madoff where the money was placed. He'd go out there and he'd tell his clients they're getting 12% returns on their investments for that 20-year period of time. Impossible. You can't do that. And when his clients would ask him how we produce those kind of returns, you know what his response was? I never told them how I did it, but they still invested with me anyhow. Interesting. So fraudsters are hard to detect because they are very convincing and there is always some kind of an element of trust in whatever they say. Eventually, the bad fruit of Bernie Madoff came forward. Con men are prevalent in our lives and they're all around us. They're in our businesses, they're in our government, and they're even in our churches. Jesus calls them false prophets or false teachers and ravenous wolves, and their fruit is soon revealed. I believe part of the reason why Jesus put this in there about the false prophets was because he wanted to warn those people that were coming through the narrow gate, those new converts, those people that were being regenerated, going through the new birth. He wanted to warn them ahead of time that you've got to be careful because these people, these false prophets, are out to to, uh, eat your lunch. They're out to take advantage of you. You know, and they're actually, uh, the thing about the people that he's talking about, they're the, ones, they're the ones that should be actually looking or watching over our souls. And so, Jesus gives them a warning. Now, later in, in Matthew 23, if you care to go ahead and flip to Matthew 23, he describes the false prophets and what their goals were. And he confronts them to their face. He calls them out for poisoning men's souls. And here's only a partial list of what we see in chapter 23. Verse 3, Jesus says that they say things and do not do them. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Verse 6, they love the places of honor. Verse 14, they devour the homes of widows. Not a very pretty picture, is it? Verse 15, they call them hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites because they hide the kingdom of heaven from the people because of their lifestyle. In verse 15, again, he makes them... They make them the converts out of their wickedness. He makes converts out of their wickedness. Number 17, verse 17, he calls them fools and blind men who promote the law but neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. Verses 25 to 27, he calls them robbers, self-indulgent, like tombs of dead men's bones. And this is really something, verse 34, he finally calls them murderers and that they will kill prophets and preachers that he plans to send to them in the future. He plans to send those people to them and they're going to kill them. So the question remains, what happened when Christ was resurrected, went to be with the Father, the church was created? All those hypocrites and false prophets went away, right? Wrong. No, they were still here. In fact, the Apostle Paul identified them in the church at Corinth. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. He says, For such men are false prophets, Deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So in this church age that we're in, how can we detect the false prophets? Well, Jesus says one way is by their fruits, by the fruits of their labor. And, uh, you know, I think this is important. You know, I have a friend that says, in our church, we should all be fruit inspectors. Kind of an interesting concept. Now, let me give you an example, a personal example. I didn't like that very much. You know, when, when Darren and I were, were put up for deacon or for elder some time back, um, many of you were asked by Pastor Steve to give an evaluation of us. You know, what, what do you think of Phil Gusky? You know, is he a hypocrite? Uh, is, he, is he true? Is he right in what he says? You know, I didn't, I didn't kind of like that. I felt very uncomfortable, you know, with, with people being exa- examining my life. But we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to be examined. Our fruit is supposed to be examined. And that's one way that you can prevent the ravenous wolves, the false prophets. But the question is, is it possible to detect them before they produce this rotten, church, rotten fruit in the church? I would, I would love to be able to deal with my clients before the fact. I would like to be able to identify those con people before the fact. I'd, be able, I'd like to be able to see those people that enter our church building and have the wrong doctrines and have the wrong motives before we see their fruit, wouldn't you? How do we do this? It's primarily by knowing their doctrine. And you go, oh, Phil, I don't want to know anything about doctrine. That gives me a headache. You know, don't you have to go to seminary to learn about doctrine and theology and all that? No. You have to have a strong understanding of what we believe. Many Christians would uh, take issue with me because, you know, discussing doctrine causes dissent. You know, it's hair splitting among the brothers. Now, I was in a church one time where I was serving in, as a, in an official capacity and, and nobody there really understood our doctrine. They didn't make an effort to understand doctrine. They really didn't want to know doctrine. And as a result, they had difficulty discerning what the scriptures wanted that church to do. They couldn't counsel people effectively. They couldn't make decisions long-term effectively. They couldn't decide to stay out of debt or not effectively. There are a lot of issues that were very prominent in the scriptures that they didn't understand because they did not understand doctrine. But we must test the preacher and the teacher for sound doctrine. Remember that the Bereans did that. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether those things that Paul was talking about were true. Wrong doctrine cannot bear good fruit. Wrong doctrine cannot bear good fruit. In his book, Strange Fire, and you can go ahead and show that, Chuck. Uh, Several of the men here are reading Strange Fire. Uh, John MacArthur documents how millions of people are conned out of their money by the health, wealth, TV evangelists. They're kind of what I consider the Bernie Madoffs of the TV evangelist world out there. But worse than losing their money, these people become victims because they don't understand the doctrines being preached. And in the process, they lose their soul. He says, MacArthur says, one of the greatest of all modern-day blasphemers is not the person that takes the Lord's name in vain, not the person that cusses, not the person that does vile things, but it's the person that claims to represent God in his message 
as a false prophet. That's a blasphemer in today's world. So the test of authentic Christianity is bearing good fruit, producing good works that honor Christ. And Jesus said this regarding bearing good fruit in John 15 too. He says, every branch in me that does not bear good fruit, he will take it away. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The wise builder is on the narrow path and shows it by producing good fruit. As builders, we are all producing some kind of fruit. Some kind of fruit is being produced by us. But is it good fruit? Is it good fruit? Builder principle number three. The wise builder follows the instructions. And let's turn back to chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus says, who are you? I don't know you. I never knew you. You aren't grafted into the vine. You haven't drunk from my cup. You haven't placed your fingers in my wounds. I have no fellowship with you. You are not a part of me. And then he gives those awful words, depart from me. Depart from me. Perhaps the most awful words that man can ever hear. Depart from me. Awful words. This final builder principle is perhaps the hardest one to preach on. It's difficult because this morning we know there are millions of people across this country and around this world that are worshiping in places just like this. Notice I said they're in worship, they're in worship or religious services. Uh, many of these worshipers can be other than Bible-believing evangelicals like ourselves. So I'm not speaking of those that are atheists or agnostics or those that are pushing back against God. I'm preaching about those religious folks, people that we know, people in our family. And these are the, this is the group that, that Jesus is addressing in, in uh, verse 21. I, I call that, there's actually two groups I think Jesus addresses here. One is what I call the rank and file the first group of worshipers. And there's a second group of worshipers. But the first group of worshipers, basically, they all have one thing in common. They're all hoping that they have won the smile of God, the God that they are worshiping. They want to please God. Many of these folks are addressing God in a very familiar way. Lord, Lord. It's part of their speech pattern. They're very familiar with God. They don't feel embarrassed to talk about God. They say, Lord, Lord, very casually. You know, they may be honoring him with their tithes and offerings. They may be teaching a Sunday school class, doing the work of a church officer. They avoid vices like smoking and drinking and working on Sundays or even going to the wrong kind of movies. They may be honor, uh, faithful in honoring their marriage vows. They're good parents, hard workers, people of integrity, good citizens. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, just as sincerely as they can. Their level of religious commitment may even exceed yours and mine. 
And therefore, it's hard and it grieves me to hear the words of Jesus when he says to these people, some of them, he says, and depart. And then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Religious people, good folks, going to hell. The second group of worshipers are found in verse 22. Uh, these are not only the religious, religious people, but appear to be kind of the elite of the religious people because they're, they're prophesying in Jesus' name. They're casting out demons in Jesus' name. They're performing many miracles in Jesus' name. They're what I call the religious professionals out there. Now, we can argue whether these things are going on today or not. And, of course, according to the... Uh, TV evangelists, they are. Maybe you have a different position. It's not what I'm going to argue this morning. But these appear to be the super faithful. And they may be in positions of leadership, pastors and elders and teachers and evangelists. And they have great influence over the church and may even have been appointed or gifted by God to do such things. But now they're on the broad way. Thus, some of the second group have been rejected by God as being lawless, just like the first. You know, this is frightening to hear. And if you talk to Steve Brandon, he'll tell you that these verses, these very verses were the verses that converted him as a college student. He was a very religious person in in high school, good moral person. But he was convicted that he was a religious person on the broad way to destruction. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. So even if the most religious among us can be cast out, who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus gives the answer and he tells us in verse 21, you ready for this? Who can be saved? Here it is. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Only those that do God's will. And what is God's will? Do we have to go to seminary to figure out God's will? No. Do we have to sit under a distinguished preacher to know what God's will is? No. Very simple. We believe the gospel. We believe in Christ. We repent of our sins and we love one another. Very simple. We do those things. We're not just here of those things. We just don't discuss those things or debate those things. We are a doer of those things. You know, I love the parable of the talents. And of the three slaves that the master gave money to, two of those servants, he said, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done. Well doing. They did well. So they did the gospel well. So we are not to be deceivers by just hearing. We should be doers as well. In conclusion, someday our construction project will be complete. But during the process, here's what's going to happen. The storms will come and test every man's work. Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Each man's work will become evident for the day will show itself because it it is revealed with fire and the fire itself will test Each man's work. Our work will be tested. Trials, tribulations, persecutors will come. And anyone who builds their foundation upon sand, which is man's way to get to God, that's the sand, 
as the foundation, will have no hope, no satisfaction in trouble, no assurance at the time of their death, and no reprieve at the day of judgment. We're going to close now, and I'd like to ask you to to bow your head right now. Just bow your head, close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you some questions. I don't want you to put up your hand. We're not going to ask you to walk an aisle or anything like that. But I want to ask you some questions. I want you to do some introspection here for a second. And I want to ask you a couple questions that you need to answer to yourself. Have you entered the narrow gate that leads to eternity? Have you entered the narrow gate that leads to eternity? And if you are through that narrow gate, are you staying on the narrow path? Or maybe you're on the broad path that leads to destruction You need to identify where you are, narrow path, broad path. Are you following false doctrine? Or do you know your doctrine? Can you see the good fruit in your own life that confirms true conversion and repentance? Do you search the scripture in order to understand what the will of the Father is? And then once you understand the will of the Father, are you doing it? Before you leave today, I would ask you, I plead with you, do business with God today while the gate is open. While he's standing there pleading with you to come in, he actually orders you to come through the gate. Come through the narrow gate and come on the narrow way that leads to eternal life and experience the joy of salvation. Our Heavenly Father, we just hold ourselves up to you for examination this morning. We thank you for this story. We thank you for these warnings And we ask you to confirm in our lives whether we are walking the narrow path or whether we be convicted that we remain on the broad way that leads to destruction. Father, we thank you for loving us enough for people here to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not hidden, Father. The door is open. The gate is open. And we just merely need to go through. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.